All right, all right, all right. Why are you guys, why are there people all the way over there? Come, join us. Join us. We're all in this together, as said in High School Musical. All righty. Uh, good morning, y'all. Uh, welcome to another week of our Love Thy Neighbor class, where we're discussing the history and the future of race relations in, in the United States and in the American church. So last week, we spent a little bit of time talking about what racist ideas are, as well as a little bit on, the, on kind of the horrors of slavery. And I hope that that puts us in the, in, in, in all on the same page when it comes to how horrific and unjust slavery was. But, of course, there were many during that period, excuse me, <clears throat> who disagreed and who preached and taught and spoke to undermine that assumption. Now in today's class, we're gonna start with that, a kind of brief lead up to discussions of abolition and then actual abolition, reconstruction, and then what came after reconstruction to set us up for the civil rights movement and up to today, which we're gonna deal with next week. So there's a lot to get through. Um, so I'm just gonna hit some kind of highlights along the way and then we're gonna have hopefully some time for questions at the end. So first of all, I want to uh, make a quick note about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the real reason why we're all here today. Now, the gospel is not primarily about personal salvation. The gospel is also not primarily about social or corporate salvation. The good news of Jesus Christ is about cosmic salvation. Adam's sin not only broke human beings' relationship with God and with one another, but it broke the world. And so therefore, the joy of salvation and the work of the Holy Spirit in us believers is not just a personal work, and it's not just a social work, though it is those things, but it's cosmic. And Paul says as much in the longest sentence in Scripture, and uh, also one of my favorite sentences in Scripture, and it takes up about 12 verses in, in, the, in the Bible, and that's Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. It's all one sentence in the Greek, but... It's broken up into verses to kind of help us read it. But the, 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 the relevant section is uh, verses 7 through 10, where Paul says, In him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. And here's the, here, and here's the good part. To unite all things in him things in heaven, and things on earth. Christ seeks to unite all things in him, all things in heaven and on earth, all things. Now, this is not a universalist claim, but it is a cosmic claim. Our views of the gospel are often too small, and such views can have devastating results. When we think that salvation is just about us, we ignore our neighbors. When we think that salvation is just about souls, we forget about bodies. When we think that it's just about people, we ignore the rest of God's creation. The gospel includes all of these things as we're called to get on the train of God's redemptive work. We trust in a Christ who is not only the new Moses, with his Sermon on the Mount purposefully calling back images of Moses on Mount Sinai, giving us a fresh interpretation of the law, but also we believe in a Christ who is the new Adam, who reverses in the Garden of Gethsemane what Adam screwed up in the Garden of Eden. Our will was marred and shattered in the earlier garden, but because of what happened in the later one, our wills, can, our wills can be and have been renewed. 
We trust in not just a personal Jesus or a social Jesus, but a cosmic Jesus Christ. But we live in a culture that has constantly given us a truncated gospel. And so that's what we're looking at today with reference to race. And so I want to start with a, with a quick look at kind of what pastors were saying during slavery. And so this is gonna, we're going we're gonna to go back to, uh, to the late 18th century for a moment. In the late 18th century, uh, one of the trends is that you see that spiritual equality is combined with temporal, that is just kind of this worldly, inequality. Here's what I mean by that. Uh, there were a number of Puritans who used to use these kinds of ideas to justify their enslavement of Africans while preaching the gospel to them. For example, Cotton Mather says, How canst thou love thy Negro and be willing to see him lie under the rage of sin and the wrath of God? Now, on the surface, that sounds fine. Why, if you, if you, say, that you, if you, if you, if you say that you love someone, why would you not preach the gospel to them? But that phrase, thy, that, that, that phrase, thy Negro, points to, two, points to two assumptions. First of all, that you have a, 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 human, a human being that belongs to you. Second of all, it assumes that Negro and slave are synonymous. Already we have this, we have this assumption that people are brought up with for generations that darker skin equals low status. You'll also remember that much of Christian history and Christian civilization was under the impression that Christians couldn't enslave other Christians. Now this, of course, created an issue because slave owners were told by some pastors to evangelize their slaves. And so clergy responded by saying that Christianity wouldn't make slaves desire freedom. It wouldn't make them revolt. Instead, it would make them better slaves. To drive that, to drive that point deeper, uh, one missionary had his slaves repeat this oath, you know, just to, just to make sure. The oath goes like this. You declare in the presence of God and before this congregation that you do not ask for the holy baptism out of any design to free yourself from the duty and obedience you owe to your master while you live, but merely for the good of your soul and to partake of the graces and blessings promised to the members of the church of Jesus Christ. This missionary, Francis Lejao, uh, whenever he baptized, whenever he baptized a slave, they they had to, they had to repeat that oath that they weren't seeking baptism to to change their own physical circumstances, but that it was just for the good of their soul. First of all, I mean the good of your soul is not mere, but second of all, the gospel is not just about your soul. But pastors argued not only that Christianity would make slaves better slaves, but it also meant that owners could do whatever was necessary to obtain compliance. Anglican Bishop Gibson wrote that if a slave behaved badly, masters could use, quote, any proper methods of enforcing obedience, any degree of strictness or severity. Pastors were integral in forming the moral consciousness of the country, affirming the appropriateness of slavery and its God-ordained nature. And, surprise, surprise, there were no significant number of conversions among slaves throughout the 18th century until the latter half. George Whitfield, everyone's favorite early American e e evangelical preacher, advocated for slavery, affirming, affirming, the, affirming the spiritual equality of black people, but also telling planters that, yes, you should be kinder to your slaves, but cruelty could have the positive effect of heightening slaves' sense of their natural misery 
making them more receptive to the gospel. Said another way, beat them harder and they'll be more receptive to Christ. These are opinions that are preached in the 18th and 19th century. Until around the 1830s, and that's a shift that I'm going to talk about next. But, up until, but, up, but up, up until this point, if someone is going to be, if someone's going to have abolitionist sentiment, the idea is that all souls matter, but not all bodies matter. The gospel speaks to souls, but black bodies suffer because God ordained them to. Now, in the 1830s, you see, you find there's a, 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 a kind of switch, a kind of switch that happens. Um, and so here's, here's kind of a map of the field. You have these three, you have these three kind of options. One is the immediatist option. So these are people who are arguing for the immediate emancipation of slaves. And we'll go into a little more detail about that in a, in a second. Second, you have gradualists who are all about kind of just gradual emancipation of slaves. And then you have, and then you have others who are arguing for slavery. Some saying that it's a benevolent institution for the uplift of Africans. Some saying that it's a restricting institution that keeps those recalcitrant Africans in line. And as a series of kind of intellectual arguments back and forth, this is a largely intractable debate, especially when these participants are, are looking to Scripture. Uh, if you want an example, uh, the, the, the example I always suggest is James Henley Thornwell's sermon on the rights and duties of masters. I always have church history students at, ba at Baylor read it because it's entirely about the Bible's condoning of slavery. Not American slavery, mind you, but slavery. And the question of how you, the, the, the question of how you adjudicate that uh, merits its own class. But if someone asks you about it, just tell them this, that the Bible does not condone a racist institution founded upon torture and familial destruction. That's what American slavery was. And a coincidence of words, seeing slavery in this, slavery in this, in this country and just seeing the word slave in the scriptures, a coincidence of words does not entail a condoning. Now back to these three groups, immediatists, gradualists, and pro-slavery. That first group, the immediatists, start to gain traction in the 1830s. And this forces a lot of Christians to kind of figure out, okay, what is it? Where, where, where are we when we talk about slavery? In the 1830s, we saw the Nat Turner Revolt, in which almost 60 white people are killed. In, in the year before, 18, 1829, we see the writing of, of David Walker's appeal to the, colored to, to, the, to the colored people of the world colored citizens of the world, which is, uh, as a text, this is, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a wonderful read, but it's, it's a text that inspires a number of people to not only recognize the evils of slavery, but to, but to actually seek for its immediate abolition. And you have continued economic advantages for the entire country as a result of slavery. Now, as a response, you have a new group of abolitionists who would not take no for an answer. These are individuals who are calling for uncompensated emancipation. That is, you set, you, planters have to set their slaves free, and they don't get any compensation for it. They called slaveholders child sellers, women whippers, and thieves. They called America a liar and a, and a disgrace to humanity for claiming to be a land of the free while keeping millions of people in an abject state of bondage. What's interesting about this group is that unlike, 
unlike the majority of white people who made up the, er the early abolitionist movement, this movement included a number of free blacks, including Frederick Douglass, Harriet Tubman, Sojourner Truth, and others people who had actually experienced slavery and could speak accurately about what the institution actually entailed. Now, as these debates are happening, there's a figure that uh, the, book that, um, the book that we've referred to a few times, Divided by Faith, there's a figure uh, that this book focuses on that I think can help us, on, can open up for us the complexities of thinking about race in the church. And that individual is Charles Finney, who I don't like for a few reasons. Um, one of which is because uh, in, in looking at his kind of evangelical methods, the goal was kind of get people in the church by any means necessary. And in, in my view, it, it looked like emotional manipulation at times. But we'll get over that for a second. Um, he was one of the individuals that kind of that made opposition to slavery the, the Christian thing to do. He preached about its evils. He, he prohibited slaveholders from, from taking communion uh, because he basically said, if you, if you hold slaves, that's, that it's, very, it, it, it's, very, it's very clearly a sin, and that, and, that, and, that, and that makes you not a Christian. But when he caught wind of this new righteously angry abolition, abolition movement, he backed off, not just because they focused on slavery kind of as this, as this key sin, which he, which he was fine with, but they were also fine with, and you're going to hear this language when we, talk, when we talk about this period, amalgamation, otherwise known as miscegenation, also known as interracial marriages. Nobody was on board with this. You have some white preachers and, po and politicians who touted that this practice led to the mongrelization of the races and the eradication of white people. In light of this, Finney saw that abolition became a detriment to evangelism. And so he left their ranks. The idea was, whenever, when, the, when the fight for abolition distracts us from the work of evangelism, ditch the former. Just go, just go for the latter. He said, there should be no diversion in the public mind from the work of conversion. Now, while saying all this, for him, racial prejudice wasn't necessarily a sin. His own, his own congregation was segregated. He opposed the election of black church trustees because that would just be unwise. And if Finney was one of the most popular evangelical preachers of this era, it's pretty safe to think that there were people in the pews who agreed, thinking, and this is something that you'll hear pretty often, yes, I mean, we all know that black people are inferior, but slavery is a bit much. And this is, in short, why, uh, why the Methodists split in 1844, why Baptists split in 1845 in the Northern and Southern Baptists, and Presbyterians split in 1857 and 1861, the new school Presbyterians and the old school Presbyterians in those years. Slavery is what splits these churches, and it splits them along North and South lines. And so ultimately, this institution is formally done away with by means of war. And the reasons for the Civil War are constantly rehearsed, happened for a number of reasons, but when you look at the southern states and their own arguments about why they seceded and why they fight the North, it's because of slavery. Some are going to say it's about states' rights, and I'll say yes, it's specifically about the states' right, the states right to hold slaves. Jefferson Davis, the so-called president of the, of, the, of the Confederate States, was viewed as a champion of a slave society 
and as the embodiment of the desires of the planter class. And so we're not, we're not just looking at a society with slaves. We're looking at a society that is founded on and, 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 and necessarily continued because of slave labor. And so when, so when Lincoln, the hero of many, of many stories, issues the, issues the Emancipation Proclamation, he's not just kind of performing a selfless act of justice, he's, he's undermining the Confederate cause because Lincoln's own views of race are controversial. For example, in his debate with Stephen Douglas, he says this, this is Lincoln. I will say then that I am not, nor ever have been, in favor of making voters of the Negroes or jurors or qualifying them to hold office or having them to marry with white people. I will say in, I will say in addition that there is a physical difference between the, black, the white and black races, which I suppose will forever forbid the two races living together upon terms of social and political equality. And inasmuch as they cannot so live, that while they do remain together, there must be the position of superior and inferior, that I, as much as any other man, am in favor of the superior position being assigned to the white man. Now, Lincoln hated slavery. That we can affirm. But like many others of abolitionist sentiment, his views could be summed up as, well, we all know that black people are inferior, of course, but slavery is a bit much. And so here's the last thing that I'll, that, I'll, that I'll say quickly about kind of pre-Civil War America, and this comes, this comes from um, historian George Marsden and, and others. But evangelical faith motivated racial beliefs and practices, but that faith looked different depending on your social situation. The way that, the way that George Marsden says it, social and economic factors made it easier for the people in the North to follow further what they, or, 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 or what they thought about, about human rights than white Southerners. And white Southerners' social and economic circumstances forced them to emphasize the parts of their heritage that stressed the importance of good order. And war was the only shock that could dislodge this schism. Many said that resolving slavery would not happen without bloodshed, and they were right. So I apologize for the, for the briefness of, uh, of the Reconstruction discussion, because there's really interesting stuff that happens in those, uh, in those 12 years. Uh, and there are a number of books on, um, we've got a resource list on, online of books and documentaries and videos and stuff that you can watch. Um, but what, but what's, just imp what's important for us to know about this, about this period is, um, is the way that this story was told for the years following Reconstruction. Because after Reconstruction, uh, after Reconstruction stops, uh, the story that's constantly told in history, in history classes is that Reconstruction fell apart because you had incompetent, uneducated Negroes in power and they screwed it all up. That's not true. The fact of the matter is, is that the work of Reconstruction of, and, of, and of acclimating newly freed black people to their circumstances was thwarted by the work of the, 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 work of the 1870s Democrat, Democratic Party and their paramilitary arm, the, the Ku Klux Klan. Emancipation set millions of slaves free, but it set them free with no resources. It's entirely like what is done with many prisoners today who, after being held, are then released with no resources. I say entirely because the 13th Amendment, which 
abolished slavery and involuntary ser servitude, did so except, and you can and you, and you can read and you can read and you can read the amendment, except if you've been convicted of a crime. So prisoners are, in the eyes of the Constitution, slaves. Now, as a result of this newly freed. As a result of this newly freed population that we have following emancipation, you have a number, you have a number of white people who get, who get upset and in order to reestablish cultural dominance and political dominance, form the Klan and a number of other organizations in order to intimidate and to kill. Now this became even easier when, in 1877, President Rutherford Hayes withdraws federal troops from the South in order to gain the election. Now those troops were there to enforce the 14th and 15th Amendment, that is equal protection under the law and voting rights specifically for black men. But without those federal troops to enforce those laws, we see open season on black life. As Mark Knoll has said, another historian, a sustained federal occupation for a number of decades could have been enough to secure black political participation and legal equality, but that was not to be the case. And Jim Crow, would come to reign supreme. But what was going on in churches? Well, immediately following the war, many African Americans fled white churches en masse to form their own. This is something we discussed at the end of, at the end of class last, last week. And something very similar is actually happening right now around the country. And for more on that, uh, take a look at the New York Times article titled, A Quiet Exodus, Why, why, why Black Worshippers Are Leaving White Evangelical Churches. Many white Christians saw this movement as divinely ordained. After all, God had made the races differently, and so they should stay with their own kind. One Virginia man said it this way, no Christian ought to allow his conscience to be disturbed by the thought that he violates the unity of the church by insisting on an independent organization for the colored race. The distinctions are drawn by God himself. Keeping blacks and whites separate was both expedient and divinely ordained. Plus, in the eyes of many whites, any issues in black communities were entirely their fault as a result. They were poor, they were uneducated, and they needed to get themselves together, regardless of the fact that it was the institution of slavery and the continuing and intensifying process of legal restriction that kept them in that state. Backing these Christians, at least ideologically, was the most prominent black intellectual of the late 19th and early 20th century, Booker T. Washington. He emphasized that black people had to, like him, pull themselves up by their bootstraps, and that they had to endure segregation and just build an economic base through vocational training. If you just work hard and are disciplined, then things will turn out well for you. Unfortunately, well, there were many black intellectuals, however, who saw that who saw that to be the lie that it was, seeing that opportunity was not really equal in 1890s America. But Jim Crow laws were not the only weight placed upon the backs of black people during this period. And the two that I'm gonna uh, focus time on are, are, are kind of the most, uh, they're the most brutal ones, one psychologically and the other physically. The first, is the Confederate Monument. You can read more about this in a book called The Southern Past by a prominent historian, W. Fitzhugh Brundage. And you, and you don't need to remember all these names. I mean, this will be, be recorded, so you can, you can look these up at your, on your, at your leisure. 
when you hear about these monuments in the news or see them, see them around, remember this. Many of these statues went up in the 1890s and 19-teens and other, other, other times around, around that period, but we're looking decades after, after the Civil War. And when you read the speeches given at their dedications, their purpose, their purpose is largely clear. This is a huge physical testament to the reign of white supremacy. It's a reclaiming of public space so that particularly for, for, for black communities, when you pass by this giant statue, you're reminded of who's actually in charge. And a lot of these are still around today. So I was in, um, I was in Augusta, Georgia, uh, giving an academic uh, presentation. And my dad really loves James Brown. And there's a statue of James Brown like in the, like, in the middle of like, the city square. And so I was like, I'm going to go take a picture with this statue and then send it, and then send it to my dad. So I go, and I park, and I go to the statue, take the picture, walk back to my car, and I, I look around, and I, and I just see this, just this giant stone statue. And I'm just like, huh, I wonder what this is. And so I walk up to it, and on one side, I see two are Confederate dead, and I'm like, okay. And then I look on the other side, and it says, um, never a nation rose so fair, nor fell so pure of crime. And so I read that, and I immediately called my mom. Well, I mean, I got in the car first, and then I called my mom, and and told her and told her this thing that I this you know just this inscription that I saw and how ridiculous it was and all these kinds of things. And her first statement to me was, "Malcolm, are you in public saying these things? You can't, you, can't, you know, you can't just be out in the middle of the street talking about how ridiculous this giant monument is." I'm like, "No, it's it, it's it's okay, mom. I'm in the car. Nobody can nobody can hear me. I mean, they can probably see me wildly gesticulating, but it's it's fine." Um, but these things are still these things are still all these things are still all around our country saying things like saying saying things like that, um, and that was actually uh, one of the one of the more uh, I mean it's not it's not a benign intimidation tactic but it's more benign than uh, what is the most uh, brutal I think uh, in, in enforcement of Jim Crow and white supremacy and that is lynching, which is what takes up a lot of my, a lot of my time. Um, and it's hugely important, I think, for us to understand what it, what it meant to be uh, black in this, in this country, particularly in this period. And so I have, I have three stories. First, Oliver Foley in 1922 fled the home that his family had worked so hard for in Mississippi because the white men in the community were planning to lynch him for some reason. It's a conflicted history. Some family members believe that he walked away from a white store clerk when, while she was talking to him, and the mob gathered as a result of that. And then others believe that he, hit, that he hit a white man who had treated him unjustly. But my great-great-grandfather could have been killed brutally for some trivial reason. Story number two. I warn you, this is, this, is, uh, this is a deeply unpleasant story. In May of 1918, Hampton Smith, a 31-year-old white plantation owner in Brooks County, Georgia, was shot and killed by one of his black workers named Sidney Johnson. Now, Smith, Smith was known for abusing and beating his workers to the point that few people in the area wanted to work for him. And so to solve this labor shortage... 
Smith turned to the debt peonage system, which we would know today as, as, as also convict leasing. So the idea is that, and this, and this happened imme immediately after the Civil War. If you remember the 13th Amendment, slavery is abolished except if you've been convicted of a crime. And so you have slaves that are freed, but it's very difficult for them to find jobs. And so states would really heavily enforce vagrancy laws. And so, so, so black people would be then arrested for not having a job. And then they would be sold to plantation owners. Slavery just continues. There was a time when, Al when Alabama's economy was, was where 70% of Alabama's economy was rooted in this, in this system. And so what Smith would do is he would he use that system by bailing people out of jail, people who were typically arrested for petty offenses, and then have them work off their debt, that is the bail money that he paid for them. He had them work that off on his, on his plantation. And 19-year-old Sidney Johnson, arrested for rolling dice and fined $30, which would translate to about $500 today. Sidney Johnson was just one such unfortunate person. And so after a few days of work on Smith's plantation, shortly after being refused his earned, his earned wages, and after being beaten by Smith for not working while he was sick, Sidney Johnson shot and killed Hampton Smith. After this shooting was a mob-driven manhunt for Johnson and others thought to be involved in this conspiracy to kill Hampton Smith, this abusive plantation owner. That was a manhunt that lasted for more than a week and it resulted in the deaths of at least 13 people. Some, some historical accounts uh, give a higher number. But one of the people killed in that rampage was named Mary Turner. Now Mary Turner, whose husband had been killed in this, in this lynching rampage, publicly objected to her husband's murder. She had the audacity to threaten to swear out warrants for those responsible. Those, quote, unwise remarks, as the areas put it, enraged locals. So consequently, Mary Turner fled for her life only to be caught and taken to a place called Folsom's Bridge on the Brooks and Lowndes County shared border. To punish her at Folsom's Bridge, the mob tied Mary Turner up by her ankles, hung her upside down, poured gasoline on her, and burned her clothes. One member of the mob, oh, I didn't mention, she was eight months pregnant at the time. And so a member of the mob cut her open, and the, and the child fell to the ground, at which point, he was, at, at, which fouled, at which point the child was stomped to death and crushed by a member of the mob. Her body was then riddled with gunfire. And at, an investigation after the fact would have people bragging about upwards of 700 bullets being shot into, being shot into her body. Later that night, she and her baby were buried 10 feet away from where they were murdered, and the makeshift grave was marked with only a whiskey bottle and a cigar in the neck. Three days after Mary Turner's murder, th three more bodies were found in the area, and Sidney Johnson was killed in a shootout with police. And once he was killed, a crowd of hundreds of people cut off his genitals and threw them into the street. A rope was tied to his neck, and his body was drugged for, for almost 20 miles, and there, they burned his body. And during and shortly after this chain of events, it's reported that more than 500 people fled those counties in fear for their lives. Lastly, right here in Waco, 
In 1916, a 17-year-old black farmhand was accused of killing and raping a white woman, Mrs. Lucy Fryer. As you would expect in a murder trial, this 17-year-old was arrested. A mob immediately gathered of people from Waco and of nearby Robinson, but they promised not to lynch him if he confessed. And so he did. And he was brought in front of a judge and a jury. And after a, after a four-minute jury deliberation, cries of, get that nigger, arose from the, from the crowd. And young Jesse Washington, illiterate and most likely mentally handicapped from our, from our, from our accounts, was seized by a mob of, of around 2,000 people from the courtroom and carried outside. They dragged him down the stairs, put a chain around his body, castrated him, and hitched him to a car, dragging him through the streets of Waco from the courthouse to the front of City Hall where a, bon where a bonfire was being prepared. And there they beat him, they stabbed him, they cut his fingers off, they put a chain around his neck, doused him in coal oil, hung him on a tree, and set a fire under him, stabbing him numerous times along the way. And they raised and lowered him into that fire for at least an hour to prolong his suffering. Women and children were in this audience. One man held up his little boy above the heads of the crowd so that he could see. And there was a boy on top of the tree where, where, where Washington was hung, but he had to get down when the fire got too hot. And then they took pictures of him and sent them to family members. Um, I have one of these pictures here. This is, this, is part of a, this is part of a postcard. The second half of the postcard is, is under this. Um, and, the, and the man who sent this postcard to his father said this. This is the barbecue we had last night. My picture is to the left with a cross over it. Your son, Joe. This was the world that a black family lived in in the South. From 1877 to 1950, more than 4,000 black men, women, and children are killed by mobs for a variety of reasons. But for many white Christians, the response was this, and this is straight out of uh, the words of Atticus Haygood, a bishop of the Methodist Episcopal Church South. When black people stop committing these crimes, lynching will stop. For those of you who are unaware of the phenomenon for about this, 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 this is a practice and a, ju and a justification that extends for at least 40 years. And it, it, it continues across the, uh, across the South. And when people, people were, whenever people were asked about why does this happen, the response was unanimous. Well, it's because black men rape white women. And so then that led to the response that came from a number of 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 white pastors where the idea was, well, when black men stop raping, then they'll stop getting lynched, which is an incredibly unhelpful response. It took the work of heroes like Ida B. Wells and others to reveal to the nation not only was that response wildly inappropriate, but it was actually based on lies. Rape was an accusation in less than a third of these cases, and when it was, often it was invented to rile up a crowd or it was a case of a consensual relationship between a black man and a white woman, which is something that was beyond the imagination of a number of the people involved. Most of these cases were actually cases where black men, women, and children had broken the laws of Jim Crow, whether they walked on the wrong side of the road, or spoke to a white person with the wrong tone, or got a little bit too economically well off, 
or in the case of an eight-year-old boy, did absolutely nothing at all. Lynching, that is, summary execution by mob, was the most brutal tactic of, quote, keeping the Negro in their place. And that was the entire purpose of the Jim Crow system that would persist into the 50s and 60s. And all the while, a number of white Christians looked on it with the assumption, well, that's a problem over there in that community, but it doesn't concern me and there's nothing I can do. Slim, do you have the, the, the picture of the, of the map? Um, this is a map done by uh, Monroe Work Today. And each of these, so each, each, of, those, each of those pixels, the, each of those dots um, is, a life taken, is, is a life taken by lynching. Um, the, orange, the orange ones are African, are, are African Americans. Um, the yellow ones are Mexicans, I believe. Blue is Italian. There are a few, there are, if, you, if you look closely, and I, I can give you the website, the website for this. Um, there are incidents where you have like a bunch of little dots together. Most of those are, are kind of mass lynching events, um, which were also a thing. Um, and so this, this gives you just kind, just kind of an image of the lives, of, of the lives lost uh, because, of this, because of this phenomenon. But also, the kind, the kind of culture that that, that that creates when you could be killed brutally at any time for no, for no reason. And so this is, this is dark, brothers and sisters. But this is, this is what this is what leads us up to the civil, uh, to the civil rights movement. And what I hope that we all, what I hope that we feel, and perhaps more deeply understand, is the tremendous weight of this country's history. I also hope that we will recognize the kind of absurdity of claiming that we have just selflessly and completely wiped out in 50 years the lingering effects of 350 years of bad theology, of crippling oppression, and of bloody violence. Communities continue to suffer as a result of these things. Churches continue to preach a truncated gospel as a result of these things. Cities remain segregated as a result of these things. As believers invested in the redeeming work of Jesus Christ, I pray that we will that we will, fig that we will figure out and we'll, di and we'll discuss over the course of these next few, few weeks some ways to, bat to battle these things. Um, and so, yes, good. That was exactly as much time as I, as I had planned. Are there, any, are there any questions about the history? Next week we're going to do kind of catalyst to civil rights and then, and then, and then into today. Um, but, does any, but, but, but what questions do you have about, about the history? We've got, we've, got about five, we've got about five minutes or so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 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 This is something that, um, so it continues, uh, the worst, the worst time for it is the 1890s up until uh, like the end of World War One. It continues, it, it continues sporadically even into the 30s and 40s. But the reason that it, but the reason that it fades, the ma the two main reasons that it that it that it that it fades are because the South is embarrassed, because you have a number of international campaigns, whether it's campaigns by the NAACP or campaigns by Ida B. Wells and others, where you have other countries. Looking at our countries and, and thinking, how how are you doing? How are you doing this to people? Um, 
and there are and there are and there are and there are economic consequences to that and all those kinds of things where uh, a number of people in the South see that it's it's bad for business. That's one reason. Second of all, you have what's called the Great Migration, and so as a result of greater opportunities in the North and the situation that lynching creates, you have millions of African Americans who leave the South and move to the North. And so this is how you have the creation of a number of, of, a number of urban communities, is because you have black people fleeing from the South and, cre and, and creating communities across, across cities in the, uh, in the North. Um, there's roughly six million people from, from about 1915 um, to 1950. And so, it, so, you, so you go from 95% of the African-American population in this country being in the South to a considerably smaller number because they, because they, because they leave. Um, and so uh, lynching doesn't fade because, you know, there's this kind of moral epiphany that the country has. Um, there are actually a, no, a number of other reasons. Uh, there were a number of attempts to pass federal anti-lynching legislation, none of them none of them make it, none of them make it through. Um, this is something that is basically done away with um, when journalists, journalists and others expose to the entire country kind of what's, or, or what's actually going on in these, in, in these circumstances. More on that in my book in two years. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so you have, I mean, you have lynchings. I mean, you have lynchings in the North, too. I was actually just, I was just reading about um, one in Delaware. There's, there's one of my, um, one of the sources that I'm using for my dissertation uh, is a book of poetry where uh, some of this poetry is written as a response to a lynching that happens in Indiana. Um, basically, the justification, Basically, a number of Northerners buy the, buy the justification given by people in the South, and when they see it in their own communities, they're just like, oh, well, that must be what's happening there, too. Um, and, and like I said, it takes, it takes a while for that, for that, to be, um, for that assumption to be, to be dispelled. Um, while, while, it's, while the number of cases is, is, much more, is much more numerous in the South, um, it's, not absent, it's not absent from the North either. Um, but there are a number of kind of other di other differences. For example, you have, I mean, you have segregation by law in the South. In the North, you have, for example, housing agreements that are made where people, you know, in apartment complexes or whatever, will decide, you know, we're not we're not going to rent to black people, or communities where they're like, we're not going to sell houses to black people. And then as a result, you have these communities are pushed are pushed into urban areas. This is this is this is part of the. I mean, this is. This is what the creation of the urban of the urban ghetto is, um, is a result of this of this of those kinds of decisions, um, and so the fact of the matter is these are these are sentiments that are nationwide sentiments. We just see them uh, take much more bloody results in the south. Other questions? Yeah, one more. Yeah, that's my dissertation, and so in a nutshell. In a nutshell, you have a wide range of things coming out of coming out of African American churches. On one on one end, you can have uh, an AME pastor, and this is I was I was I was just looking at this before, where where a pastor is like the only basically the only hope is for you to if you're going to go down, go down swinging. One option. 
Take as many, take as many out as you can with you. Other side, you, you, you can have a Pentecostal pastor who says part of the second blessing of the, of the, of the, part of the second blessing of the Holy Spirit is protection from the lyncher. And so the Holy Spirit's, the Holy Spirit's going to protect you, so you don't even need to worry about it. Those are the kind of two, those are kind of the two sides. It, and, then, and then in the middle you may have, for example, Presbyterian pastor Francis Grimke, who's, who in a three-sermon sermon series on lynching said, ministers need to head up an edu- a, a comprehensive educational campaign that dispels, that dispels negative stereotypes and instead affirms that black people are created in the image of God and also trains and also kind of also trains church members to figure out kind of what that or what that or what that means for them politically, you have a you have a range of things coming out of coming out of African American churches, and that's explicitly what my book is going to be about in two years. So, uh, and that's what I'm and that's what I'm working on now. Other questions we can deal with later. Let me just pray. Let me just pray real quick, and then we'll get ready for worship. Heavenly Father.